As you make your way back to your seats, we continue to worship our great God, our Savior Jesus Christ, and we are still in Genesis 49. As you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 49, continuing our study, nearly completing our study, but not this week. Genesis 49, and we will begin reading in verse 1 through verse 28. Genesis 49.1 says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Is, listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the beasts and of breasts and of the womb, blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them 
as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word, and Lord, we pray that, God, that you would teach us in our hearts and minds, Lord, that you would allow your words to sink deep into our hearts. Father, I'm unable, incapable, Father, to speak into hearts and minds. Lord, I cannot change my own heart and mind, Lord. That's your work to do in me and in all of my brothers and sisters here. God, we pray that you would do that among us and in us for your glory. In the name of our Son, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Well, we are here in Genesis 49. What we have just read are the last words from Jacob, from his deathbed, to his 12 sons. So as we approach this chapter and, and we seek to learn from God, that's the immediate occasion. That's what brings all of this about. The, the words that are here and the context for them, Jacob knows he's dying, and he is giving words, final words, to his 12 sons. But thankfully, that's not all they are. They're found here in the Word of God, so that these words are inspired, breathed out by God, intended for us also. Even though they were spoken in such a private setting, such an intimate setting, they're recorded for our instruction, for our learning as well. But finally, these words are described in two ways, one at the beginning and one at the end. Jacob says, y'all need to come around here and listen, if he had an accent like that. (laughs) Y'all come around here and listen up. Reminiscent of the Proverbs, he says, listen, my sons, listen to what your father says, okay? He says, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So, these are prophetic words. These, these are words about the future that are to come upon these men and their families after them. Some of these are very far in the future. So, some of them haven't even happened yet. We look forward to them happening. Now, some of them are nearer future, only about four to 500 years after this. So, nearer future, farther future, one in particular, we just can't even tell when or if it happened. But at the end, verse 28 adds that these were blessings to them, each being a blessing suitable to them. But as we read this, we saw that not all of them have just an exactly clear blessing to them. Not all of them are just very clear blessings. How are they a blessing? Well, they all depend on these men, their families after them entering the promised land. Did we catch that, that all of this has to do with being in the land and sometime in the future, either a few hundred years or thousands of years after the fact, but they are going to make it into the, into the blessed, promised, covenanted land of Canaan. That's a blessing. What, you know, whether the consequences of sin go down, and, and we'll talk about that and, and what that looks like, but some of them will be blessed more than others. It's all up to God's prerogative, but all of them will be blessed to come into the promised land. Their families will survive, th- their lines will all continue, and they will be brought into the promised land. So these are Jacob's last words to his sons, but they're God's word. They're prophetic, and they're blessings. And so for us, they're instructive and beneficial, even though they're not directed to us personally and directly. So let's walk through these words from Jacob to his sons. And we don't really have an outline. You you saw the the notes page. It's not a a nice, neat, uh, tidy outline because we'd have at least 12 different main points and then subpoints under that and then try to get some, some lessons that we can learn. Instead, we just sort of have this shotgun type outline, just let's get the lessons out there. So that's what we have in our notes Uh, It's about to get very practical. 
Let's look first at Reuben, verses 3 and 4. Now, listen to these words that Jacob gives to Reuben, how he describes Reuben. He says, you're my firstborn. Firstborn means the place of honor, the, the, the place of prominence. He says, my strength, my, my ability to accomplish things, my, my, my strength, okay, my, uh, how I can do anything. The first fruits, that's, that's the beginning, either in order of rank or order. Uh, this is the first place, the first fruits of my strength, his, his vigor, his, his wealth, his power. He says preeminent, uh, uh, that's the word that means what goes beyond, what exceeds, it goes above and beyond. You're preeminent in dignity, that's his splendor, his, his honor, his loftiness. You're preeminent in power, again, he's fierce and he's mighty and powerful. And so Jacob is just piling up all of those descriptions of the great Reuben, his firstborn son, and they don't sound like exaggerations, do they? I mean, they, they don't say, he's not telling him, you're the greatest person in the world, right? Uh, more powerful than a locomotive and faster than a speeding bullet, you know? I mean, he's not building up, exaggerating and hyperbole and flattery. It, these are accurate descriptions of how great God made this man, Reuben. He, he, was, he was powerful and he was, he was preeminent and, and dignity and he had all of these things going for him. But look what comes in verse 4 unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Twice he had used the word preeminent for Reuben's dignity and power, but that preeminence has all been lost. Uh, He still has might, and he still has strength and power, and maybe even some dignity, but the place of exceeding all of those things, the the excelling and the having preeminence has, has all been lost. And not just lost, but Reuben ruined it for himself. He got rid of it. He forfeited it because he was unstable as water. And water we think about is so useful and necessary and it's so good, but it can also be uncontainable. It can get loose. It can overcome. It can overwhelm anything man comes up with and invents, uh, dams and concrete and walls and metal, even rock. That's how Reuben's character is compared to, to unstable water. And the, the moment, the, the key moment that teaches us about Reuben's character that Jacob refers to was back in chapter 35 when he took his father's concubine, Bilhah. It was only one act. He said, you know, it was one moment in time, but it took so much planning and forethought, premeditation, decisive action through strength and pride to bring it about. Um, we talked about it back in chapter 35. It most likely had nothing to do with lust. She would have been fairly old at the point. But what Reuben would done, had done was he, would, he had realized his might and his strength and his power, all those things that Jacob has just talked about, and he challenged his father for the right to rule the family by laying with Bilhah. He went up to his father's bed and defiled it. It was a personal act. It was a deliberate, evil act. And so it wasn't just a one-time act of passion that Reuben did. He thought about it. He planned it out. He carried it out. And it disqualified him from being the firstborn, the one who was over the family. Remember that firstborn carries leadership. It means leadership in the family. It, it, It carries a double portion of blessing. The idea here is that there was so much promise, Reuben, you had so much potential. There were so many good things going for you. If only you could have controlled yourself. If only you could have made yourself humble and kept yourself humble. Uh, Reuben could have been a great leader for the family, the way that God had equipped him. 
But instead, he was unstable. He was hot-headed. He was led by a sense of his own importance. It led to his recklessness and an attitude of license to just do whatever I want. Remember in chapter 37, it was Reuben's idea to uh, throw Joseph into the pit. He thought he could just save Joseph just by telling his brothers, here, let's do this instead. He thought he could rescue them from their plan to kill him. But we saw that later on his real concern was when the boy was gone, he says, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Not really a care or concern about where Joseph had gone. As his father descended into depression and mourning, he continued to hold on to the lie, remember, that Joseph had been killed by an animal. And when they had to go back to Egypt to get more food, Reuben was the one who said, look, I'll give you my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back, right? So important am I that I cannot be sacrificed. I'll let you kill my two sons. (laughs) This was Reuben. Now, it was Reuben's one act in particular that Jacob brings out that brought this upon him. He was removed as firstborn son. He would not have preeminence. But worse, this is what's worse. We understand, okay, there are consequences to sin for Reuben, right? But worse, the sinfulness of Reuben affected the entire tribe of Reuben after him. From him forward after his time, there would be two preeminent tribes in Israel, Joseph and Judah, not Reuben. Judah would rule over the others, and and Joseph's tribe, particularly Ephraim, would be exalted above the other tribes, but Reuben would not have any preeminence, and it was all based on the sin of this man, Reuben. And it continued throughout the generations. In, In the wilderness, before Israel entered the land, you remember in Numbers chapter 16, a man named Korah, he was a Levite. He joined with men from the tribe of Reuben, and they staged a coup. They challenged Moses and Aaron's authority. They said, we can be in charge. You're making too much of yourselves. You think you're so big? We're just as big. We're God's people too. We can do what you're doing. And God judged those men by opening the ground and swallowing them and their families because of their rebellion. Reuben tried to challenge what God had said and and the way that God had things, and and they were swallowed up. Later in the time of Judges, so many men in Israel were weak and unfaithful. God raised up Deborah, a woman, to become judge over his people, a leader. And after she sang, or or, or after, after her victory, she sang particularly about Reuben in Judges 5, verses 15 and 16, about how they didn't even help. They they couldn't even be bothered to help save Israel from the people who were oppressing them. They just sat among the sheepfolds, she said, and searched their heart. That's all Reuben did in trouble. But what we see, what what we're learning in these words from Reuben is that our sin affects other people. Our sin affects and brings consequences to other people, but, but those effects and those consequences, they never remain on ourselves. They, they never just affect us. They spread. It spreads outward, and so do the consequences and effects of sin. But more specifically, here for Reuben, it is the sins of the father that, not ju- that, that don't just spread outward. They spread downward into the generations after The father, this is a key principle for men who are fathers, for men who will be fathers. Number one, as a a lesson for us, is that fathers, your sins affect the lives of generations after you. And that's a serious 
consequence for men to understand. And, and that's not to say that it does, it's not true for women also, but this is one that is repeated in Scripture, this concept that God holds fathers as specifically and especially accountable for their sins as it affects generations after them. Now, there are many verses we could talk about, but the one that, that I wanted to bring us to, and you can turn there if you want, we're just going to, to just talk about the verses for just a minute, is when God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock from seeing the whole picture of God's glory, because nobody can do that, nobody can handle that. He passed before him, God announced his very name before Moses, and here's what God's name is in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, you probably know me well enough by now, I can't read this as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Because I don't think that's how God said his, were his name as he passed before Moses. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's God's name. All of that is God's name, His character, who God is. His character is that He will by no means clear the guilty. He is holy. He is pure. He is the pure and holy God, and we are all guilty, and none of us can just have our guilt just cleaned out of the way. None of us can just have our sins brushed aside as if they didn't matter or like they just didn't happen. In fact, that sin penetrates to the third and fourth generation of our family, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, even our great-great-grandchildren. You say, that's not fair. <laughs> At a human level, no, that's not fair that your children and your grandchildren have to suffer for your sins. But that's how sin works. That's how it spreads. That's how it works outward and downward and, and affects people after you and around you. Water finds a way out of how you've got it trapped, and so does sin. And we think we get a handle on it, and it just spreads. You've heard of generational sins. A man who is not a godly man has children, and his children watch him, and they learn from him, and they repeat his sins, and they have children, and they repeat those same sins, and it just gets passed down. On it goes. Sin spreads. It infects. And we've talked before about how it's like glitter because it's so shiny, and it's so appealing, but it gets everywhere, and you can't get rid of it. It spreads to those around you, but more tragically and more readily and easily into your children through generations. But at God's level, this is justice. It's, it's justice, that sin is within us, and it begets sin, and it gives birth to more sin and more death, and you say, well, doesn't that put a stain on God's character? No, it doesn't, because again, in Exodus 34, as God's name and His character are proclaimed, remember that He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and, and keeping that steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And I wish we could spend more time in that, what that all means, but when you are guilty, and we all are, you will by no means be cleared. That is His justice. But there is a way to find God's mercy, His grace, His steadfast love to overcome the justice due to us 
so that we can be forgiven. His mercy and His grace are found in Jesus Christ. And that's why we proclaimed His death this morning in the Lord's Supper. That, that's why we partook of the bread and, and drank of the juice for his, for his blood so that we could proclaim the death of Jesus who took that wrath of God, who took His justice and paid the penalty that we owed it paid for all of our sins and the consequences that we deserved. Our sins are not just cleared away. In Jesus, He takes them and He pays the penalty for us. Your sins are cleared by God's justice being expended on Jesus in our place. And so if you will confess your sins rather than excuse them, if you'll repent of them, turn away from them by faith in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven and so can your children. They can be forgiven their own sins, and then they can overcome the sins that have been passed down to them. There is hope for children who will not just be at the mercy of sin in their life for the rest of their life. Regardless of whether you ever believe, your children can believe, and Jesus can overcome sin in their life. They don't have to be stuck in your sins. They can be changed by God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. So, so fathers, parents in general, but particularly fathers, there is a great responsibility on us to live as the Lord calls us to live. And the bad news is we're going to mess up. We're going to sin, and those sins are going to have a real impact on the children after us and the children of their children after us. But by God's grace and His mercy, He can overcome that in the life of our children. Number two here for a lesson, sons and daughters. Uh, this would be all of us. We are all sons and daughters of, even if in tragic life we didn't know them or they're not here any longer, young or not young, we're all sons and daughters. But the potential for your life, based on your abilities, can be spoiled, like Reuben's was. All of the great things that are going for you, all of the ways that God has gifted you, the ways that He's prepared you, the great things that God has done, you can spoil it all. It can amount to nothing as it did with Reuben because he came, became full of himself. He acted recklessly, wrongly. And we can see how some of that came from his father, Jacob. It kind of came down to, uh, to Reuben, but he was responsible for himself. And so were his children. But you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be made clean and saved from God's wrath and punishment forever. But there can also still be consequences that come. Those are the words from Jacob to Reuben. Uh, they were for the future, near and far. Let's look at Simeon and Levi, verses 5 to 7. Jacob says they're brothers, and it may sound like it's kind of stating the obvious that they're brothers, but Jacob means here they're two of a kind. These two men, they proved they were like-minded as brothers by their violence and anger. Now, again, chapter 34 is the event that specifically Jacob is talking about where uh, they had lived outside the city of Shechem, and Jacob's daughter Dinah had gone into the city to meet the other women, and people debate whether that was wrong or right. It's beside the point because the prince of the city Shechem, whose name was Shechem, took her, the Bible says, lay with her and humiliated her. And then he decides, well, I love her, so I need to tell my dad to make her my wife. That's what Shechem, the prince of Shechem, said. Now, Jacob heard about it, and his sons heard about it. Jacob did nothing, 
The sons come in from the field just as the king, Hamor, is approaching. And the king says, hey, how can we get together and combine Shechem and Israel? How can we become one people? Because we find out later they really just wanted all of Israel's stuff. Jacob's sons say, here's the deal. Every one of the males of Shechem must be circumcised, and then we'll let Dinah marry Shechem, the prince, and then we'll just be joined up as one people. So Shechem agreed But on the third day when they had been circumcised and everyone was the most sore and unable to defend themselves, Simeon and Levi raided the city, slaughtered every defenseless man in the city, and they plundered the city and took all of their stuff. They did what the other people had planned to do. Now, Jacob had rebuked them at the time, but that was it. But here, the word that Jacob uses at the beginning of verse 7 is cursed. Cursed be that anger. Now, verse 28 says this is a blessing from Jacob to his sons. So, this is a blessing, and yet he's cursing them? Well, read the rest of the verse. Cursed be these men? Is that what he says? Or, Or cursed be their offspring after them? No, he doesn't say that. He says cursed be their anger and their wrath because it's fierce and cruel. So, Jacob calls their attention to what they did to remind them of the consequence of their sin, to help them to learn and to understand that this is a consequence of their sin. Verse 7 is the consequence. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And that's important because it it looks forward to the time when Israel will be Israel in Israel. (laughs) They'll come into the land. They will be in the land. Again, that will be a blessing. That will be a good thing. Just being in the land in the fulfillment of God's promise will be a blessing. But their consequence will be found in in not having their own land, not having their own apportioned part. They will be scattered. Levi, the Levites, were given tasks that required them to serve as priests in the temple and in cities throughout the land of Israel, 48 different cities. They were scattered throughout. God excludes the entire tribe of Levi even from inheriting any land like the other tribes did. Yet... In Exodus 32, remember the golden calf that, they, that the people made when Moses was on the mountain? And he came down, and, and God said, you need to deal with those people that did that. It was a tribe of Levi who, again, violently, and again, angrily, and fiercely struck down the people who did that. But they were being zealous for the Lord, and the Lord actually took that consequence of sin, of being scattered everywhere, and he turns it into a blessing. Exodus 32, 29 literally calls it a blessing because even though they don't get their own land, the consequence still holds, now they get to eat the best of the land. Because whenever anybody brings a sacrifice to the Lord, they have to bring the best, and the Levites eat of that food that's brought in. They don't even have to work the land. They have a lot of work to do, and they don't get to inherit any of the land, but but their portion was the Lord rather than the land. And so even in the consequence of sin that came to them, God changed it into a blessing for them when they were zealous for Him. As for Simeon, the allotment of their land fell entirely within Judah's territory. Judah's territory is here, and Reuben gets, uh, not Reuben, (laughs) Simeon here gets just a little bit of land right in the middle of Judah. And they're surrounded on all sides so that later in 1 Chronicles 4, they started to move around, and then eventually Simeon was dissolved into the other tribes. Even as early as Joshua's time when they're dividing the land and they're identifying those 48 cities for the Levites that we talked about, all the cities that are mentioned in, uh, in Simeon's land really are just mentioned as part of Reuben's land. They're, they just sort of dissolve. 
And so all of it happened to these two tribes as a consequence of their father's actions. Because these men went out as vigilantes and they killed an entire city. And it was the wrathful anger of man that motivated those actions. And they could try to justify it. You know, we were defending the honor of our sister. And surely something should have been done. We agree that something should have been done. But what they did in vigilantism was not right. It wasn't just. And so they were dispersed. They, they would be dissolved into the other tribes to pres- really to prevent them from carrying out something like that again in the future. And these two men also were not permitted to take Reuben's place as the firstborn. Again, we're reminded that sin's effects and consequences spread far and wide, inward, outward, and downward. You could add a lesson in there also about vigilantism and not being acceptable. But number three, there is hope. As we talked about, God can use even consequences of sin for good. Even the consequences of our sin, God can use for good, as we saw with Levi. That means, brother and sister, that means man, woman, that means young person in here, is that it's never too late to repent of sin and to believe. God is good. Judah, verses 8 to 12. You remember chapter 38 of Genesis? Judah's sordid past. He was part of the plan to sell Joseph into slavery. He saw his father's sorrow. He skipped town. He went to the idolatrous people of the land. He cut himself off from fellowship with believers. He made friends with unbelievers. He even married an unbelieving woman. They had three sons, two who were so wicked, God killed them. He tries to protect his third, even while his wife dies. His daughter-in-law tricks him and he tur- as he turns into to, to sexual gratification and work to try to fill all of the holes in his heart. She gives birth to twins after he hypocritically attempted to stone her to death for her immorality that she committed with him. That was Judah, right? That's what we saw in Genesis from Judah. And you might think, well, Reuben disqualified himself. Simeon and Levi disqualified themselves. We just need to keep moving because Reuben, because Judah here clearly has disqualified himself. But after that, we saw the public confession of his sin. We saw the fruits of repentance in his life afterwards, starting with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, And then continuing in the family, moving back to the family of believers, protecting Benjamin, not just saying that he would, but actually offering his life at that moment when it mattered. Like, nope, take me instead of Benjamin when that time came. So despite Judah not being righteous, not being better than anybody else in the family, as Jacob turns to Judah, there's no rebuke here, only blessing. Verse 8 is descriptive of Judah's preeminence, that um, what was removed from Reuben, given to Judah, his brothers will praise him, he'll conquer his enemies, his father's sons, his brothers are going to bow to them, he's going to rule over them. Verse 9 is the picture of a lion, and it says the cub, it's not the cute little, you know, lion cub that like just squeaks and jumps over the other little cubs and plays with mommy. This is the young but mature lion in his full strength. In, in all of his abilities that nobody's going to mess with. He's already been victorious. He's finished eating his prey. He's come up from the prey, Jacob says. Um, he's compared to a lioness. You see a lioness, you assume there are cubs around. You don't mess with a lion or a lioness. And lions have nearly always been the picture of royalty. And verse 10 makes that clear. The scepter, the symbol of rule and dominion, will not depart from Judah. 
the ruler's staff will not depart from between his feet. His family will be firmly in control. But there's an important question that comes up. What does it mean that until tribute comes to him, the NIV says until uh, he to whom it belongs shall come. The NKJV, New King James, the the New American Standard says until Shiloh comes. Uh, What does this mean? (laughs) What's going on here? The, The Hebrew word is Shiloh, but many linguists say it's not the same as the city Shiloh that was to come. It doesn't exactly match either that Judah would rule over the family until Shiloh comes, which happens pretty early in history because Judah's reign actually happens after all of that. But these words are translated well in the NIV or in the ESV that we have, that we usually read from here, until tribute comes to him or he to whom it belongs. The idea is that Judah's rule will not end. The scepter, the ruler's staff, will not depart until the proper time when all of the people are brought into submission before him, until the obedience of the peoples. Peoples there doesn't mean just Israel. Peoples, generally, what it means when we read that in the Old Testament is nations, peoples, everybody. The rule and reign of Judah will be all the way to the end. Why is that prophecy so important? Because it's a turning point for what Jacob says to Judah from here to to the end of what he says. It's a key identifier for the coming Messiah who will come through Judah. Asaph penned the words to the song in Psalm 78. He says, God rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. The Lord chose Judah to be the ruling tribe, to be the one the Messiah would come through, so that in 2 Samuel 7, God assures David, he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the, that's the line of the Messiah. That's Judah, the ruling tribe. In fact, this image of the lion associated with Judah is the background for how the exalted Jesus is seen by John in Revelation 5, 5 when he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. It comes from here. The root of David, the one who has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals, the lion of Judah, that's Jesus. These prophetic words introduce far future fulfillment of the Messiah himself. But it's also the blessing of Judah that's nearer because Judah will rule over the people. And it's clearly not because Judah was more worthy or deserving of this, was it? God used him despite his sin from his past because he dealt with it before God. We've talked about He confessed it. He turned away from it. He believed in God, but even more because God decided to use him. Now, as you read verses 11 and 12, we don't really catch the imagery very well in English. The the picture you're to get with these verses is that when the people are brought into obedience to the Lord Messiah, there will be abundance and fullness to a measure that nobody can imagine. That's what he means when he says he ties up a a donkey to a grapevine. Why would anybody do that? (laughs) Well, you wouldn't really, because the donkey could get loose very easily. The donkey could just sit there and eat the vine, tear it all up. I mean, you'd lose both the vine and the donkey. But there's such an abundance and such a powerful reign here that he does as he, wish, as he wishes, and he's not concerned about anything. Everything just does what it's supposed to do. He, he can do this with no worries. The next picture is, is such an abundance of the blood of grapes, that's wine, 
or productive crops that it washes all over onto his robes, or it means that it's so abundant he can just wash his garments in it, the idea being like filthy rich. <laughs> I mean, the point of all of this, the, the, the picture we're to get is just an abundance and, and, and so much blessing that, that it's abundant. It's, it's everywhere. It's filled and overflowing. The health and the vigor of This Messiah who comes from Judah is described in verse 12 with eyes darker than wine rather than faded with age or sun damage, teeth whiter than milk. This was before the time of modern dentistry. <laughs> you know, so, so it's health, it's vigor, it's strength, it's power, it's, it's in control, and it's abundance and it's blessing. It's a vivid picture of what's still to come in the future. But it's just as sure as anything else in God's Word because it is God's Word. So we need to get on to this, uh, this lesson here. Number four, God uses whom he will, though there are rewards for repentance and faithfulness. There are rewards as we're faithful to the Lord. Number five, Jesus is the exalted eternal king whose kingdom will be full of abundance. And that's what we look forward to when Jesus is recognized fully, openly, publicly before everybody and everything. Here is our king. Here he is to rule and to reign. Now, the next few are very short, Zebulun in verse 13. Um, Zebulun either being near or at the shore of the sea, um, a haven for ships. It's, it's a picture of enrichment of trade for them. That, that's the picture there. Um, the fulfillment here is not clear. It didn't happen um, when all the tribes inherited the land. Uh, we don't know when this is going to happen. But lesson six here in our, in our notes is that God's word is always true. It is always true, God never lies in his word, so that number seven, even when we don't fully understand what's happening, even when we see things that are difficult and we don't understand why isn't this happening yet or when is that going to happen, we believe and we trust the Lord and we work where he has us. We believe and we trust. Issachar is in verses 14 and 15, the picture is just an an immense amount of strength. and an absolute kind of strength in verse 15, you could say even potential, they fall into good enough, either through laziness or pragmatism, you know, whatever works, it's fine. They decide they want to keep their comforts that they find in the land. They want to keep what they like so much. They're willing to sacrifice their freedom to keep it, and so they become enslaved. God's command to them would be to own the land, to be free in the land, to, to experience the blessings of the land, to worship God. They would disobey God. They said, no, I don't want to work. I, I don't want to lose the, the comforts. I don't want to lose what I like, so I'll just become a slave and disobey what God has said for their own pleasure. So number eight, don't trade pleasure for obedience to the Lord. Don't trade what I want. <laughs> what I think I would like to have. Dan is next in verses 16 to 18. It was a smaller tribe, but verse 16 says they'll be able to hold their own. They'll, have, they'll be able to judge their tribe like the other ones. Verse 17 is a little more difficult. Does it mean that they'll be small but powerful for good? Like they won't, they won't be mighty like a horse-mounted soldier, but they'll be able to bring them down like a viper in the path? Or does it mean that... Uh, They'll be treacherous to anyone, like a snake that bites unexpectedly. We, we don't know if it's for good or for bad, but the idea is that uh, they're small but powerful. The key verse, of course, is verse 18, I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. It comes after Dan's description of his, of his littleness, 
but the power. It, it comes after Judah's description of the Messiah who is to come. It comes after the description of these t- tribes that seem so insignificant. Salvation doesn't come through strength, significance, power, anything from man. It comes from the Lord alone. Number nine, salvation comes only from the Lord. There's encouragement in that because it means don't try to be good enough because you're not. Jesus is. Jesus is good enough. He has already been good enough. He will always be enough. So rest in him. Gad is verse 19, and this is a word play. It means uh, Gad, Gad, his name actually means raid or attacker or, or raider. Uh, if Jimmy were here, we could, we could talk about the raiders. But no, we're not going to talk about that. This is uh, the raiders who will come into the land. The, it, literally, the word play here in Hebrew is that raiders will raid, but he will raid back. <laughs> Gad will be constantly attacked on the, on the wrong side or the other side of the Jordan. Uh, but God will protect his people. That's our lesson number 10. God will protect his people. Asher is verse 20. They'll re- receive blessings of fine food. So good it'll be delicacies, royal foods. And our understanding there is number 11. God will provide for his people. Richly even. God even richly provides for his people. Naphtali in verse 21 The Hebrew is a little difficult for many translators. There's there's a lot of different ways that it could possibly be, but the concept is the same. The idea is that Naphtali will be free and bountiful in the land that God brings them to. So number 12, God will ensure the freedom of his people. Uh, Physically for Naphtali, spiritually for us, he will protect us. And Joseph is number 11, verses 22 to 26. And we may again have some difficult images and, and language as we, as we read these, but the picture is the fullness and health of fruitfulness. Joseph will be the recipient of the biggest and the most blessings, but he'll funnel those out to the other tribes. Verse 23 seems to talk about how his brothers betrayed him, but God saw him through, and Joseph is going to be fruitful. He's going to be blessed be, beyond everything because of the real source, God, who's described in five ways. Number, number one, the mighty one of Jacob. This is not El Shaddai, as we've been learning about, but it's God, uh, the, the mighty one, the, the powerful one, and it's used, every time it's used, is referring to the mighty one of Jacob or of Israel, and it always refers to his strength to overcome his enemies and redeem his people. That's how it's always used all six times in the Old Testament. The second way God is described is a shepherd, and again, the, the, this very vivid vivid image of shepherd for God as these shepherds understood. He's constantly present. He's wise in his provision, his protection of his people. Uh, Third is the stone of Israel. God is the stone of Israel. The the title for this uh, uh, of God as the stone is his strength, his stability, his ever-present refuge. God is the never-changing strength. He's our never-moving protection as the stone of Israel. Number four, God of your Father who will help you. Again, it's the same God, eternal God, never changing God, and who is here to help you. Number five, the Almighty, and this is that word Shaddai, that all-powerful, all-mighty God. In those five descriptions, God is the one who brings blessing. Uh, Six times in two verses, blessings upon blessings upon blessings from above, from beneath, I mean, from, from conception in the womb, through childhood, and more and more blessings. God just blesses uh, the blessings He gave to your Father even more, all the way out to eternity, to the boundaries of the everlasting hills. 
Jacob calls upon the head of Joseph, the one who was set apart from his brothers, that all of these blessings from God. So number 13, all blessings come from God because of who God is. Those five descriptions of who God is, that was the basis for those blessings. It wasn't because of Joseph. It wasn't because of Jacob. It wasn't because any of them deserved it. It was because God blessed. Benjamin's the last one in verse 27. The words for Benjamin wrap up what will happen to them. The reference to a ravenous wolf is, is not as fierce as a lion, but still powerful and still dangerous. And Benjamin would have a reputation throughout the history of Israel as being powerful. Um, even the first king of Israel, Saul, came from Benjamin. They will be strong, but not always toward righteousness. But our lesson here, of course, number 14, is that strength comes from the Lord. Our strength really does come from the Lord and not ourselves. Those are the words that Jacob gave to his sons from his deathbed. They were prophetic and they were blessings because they would all come to them in the promised land or they're still to come. None of them earned his grace, even just entering the land. God just gave it to them because of who he is. None of them deserved all of the other blessings. None of them deserved the lessons that they learned so that they could live pleasing to him. But God gave it all by his grace, his mercy to his people. Well, there are a lot of lessons for us that, that, uh, that we've gone through and we've gone through quickly. Uh, Lord willing, none of them were forced where they don't exist, but, but this word of the Lord is always relevant. It's always beneficial to us, even when it's not specifically addressing us. It has truth that we can learn, that we can grow by, and we can be blessed by God's word. It's always true. It's how God speaks to us as people. So Lord willing, these will stick with us and, and they'll encourage us and that we'll not just be brought down by the difficulties of the lessons that we've got to learn. Father, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for the truth of your word. God, thank you that you have preserved it through ages. God, thank you that you have given it to us in our language, Father. As we were reminded this week, Lord, with the presentation that we had on Thursday night with uh, Terry and Cindy, God, we know that not everyone on this planet has your word in their own language. Uh, God, thank you that you have given it to us. Lord, thank you that we can read or we can hear and we can understand. God, we pray that you would plant this word into our hearts and our minds, our souls. God, it, it saves us. It saves us from sin, Lord. It saves us from eternal consequences. God, even if we have to experience consequences on this earth from sin, God, we know we know, Lord, that you can redeem us. You can save us. Lord, that you can take consequences, and Lord, you can even turn those into blessing when we repent of sin, when we believe in Jesus Christ. God, we pray that for every person here. We pray that for every person we come in contact with, Lord, that you would use us as lights in this world, that you would make us salt, that people would tell, would be able to tell that there's a difference. God, that you have been at work in us, that we have been in your presence. God, that you'd be glorified. We look forward to our, the return of our Savior Jesus for us, and we ask that he would come. In his name we pray, amen.